There you got it. All right. Well, welcome. It's good to have all of you here today. I'm excited for today's message. If you've been here uh, this earlier part of this year, you know that I began the year with feeling that the Lord has called us as a church with this theme of connect and tell. That during this year, we're going to focus on this message of connecting and telling, that God wants us to take very seriously the Great Commission. Some of you know in Acts 1 verse 8, the author says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon me you and you'll be my witnesses. So this year we want to really focus on being the witness that Christ has called us to be. And I know that's a, that's a tricky thing. When we talk about being a witness, we talk about sharing the gospel, we have a tendency to get a little bit nervous right away because we think, okay, what am I going to say? How am I going to do this? Makes us a little anxious. So that's kind of something we want to talk about this year, but focus a lot on that. What do you say? But see, in addition to knowing what to say, we also run into obstacles when we want to share the gospel of Christ. I mean, we are all aware that we have an enemy that doesn't want other people to learn about who Christ is. So we have that spiritual force that is always against us. So the enemy's trying to think of ways to discourage us and say, no, you don't want to share the gospel or don't do that. You might get rejected or come up with a bunch of lies to keep us quiet. And so we do have that. We have that thought of what am I going to say, then the enemy's opposition. But in the last uh, decade or so, we have this new opposition that has been rising up in our culture. As our culture moves more and more to a post-Christian culture, we have a resistance from a culture itself that says, I really don't want your Christianity anymore. See, at one time, like when I was growing up, Christianity was a popular thing to do. And if you weren't a Christian, you still respected people who were Christians. But now in this day, in this culture, people are like, no, I don't have a whole lot of respect for Christians. They have a lot of uh, names that they would call us or they don't really appreciate us too well. And so they were really resistant to the gospel. You're having uh, thoughts, you're having uh, opposition of over what is the truth. Probably decades ago, people would be pretty open to truth was formed by objective truth, meaning if you could prove truth or if you had science behind truth, then people would say, okay, I'm going to believe that. If you have a majority uh, views a issue or a topic in one way, people would believe it. Now people are like, no, I don't like objective truth anymore. Truth is subjective now in our culture, meaning I will determine what's true for me. So we've had a big shift in our culture. Pr- truth no longer is formed by what is a majority view or what is based on science and evidence. People say, no, I will determine what works for me. So Christianity no longer can you just sit down with somebody and say, this is the Bible, this is what the Bible says, this is God's plan. People will be like, no, I don't believe that. That doesn't work for me. So we have this whole culture now that is shifted and they no longer like authority. People don't like the authority of the word of God or they don't like the authority of what a pastor might say or a church leader would say. Instead, they want to make their decisions based on experiences. So you have a whole culture now that likes experience. And what my experience is, is going to be the truth for me. Now, maybe you have a different experience. Well, that can be your truth. So it's an interesting culture to try to share the message of Jesus Christ in because people have this natural reaction like, I'm not going to buy that. Because what's true for me might not be, what's true for me might not be what you're trying to sell to me. So we have a lot of people that are really uh, opposed to Christianity. So Christianity, which at one point was the majority view in our culture, is now becoming the minority view in our culture. And in some ways, it's becoming the fringe view. Some people now look at Christianity in our culture and say, you are the problem. Before, people would probably say, okay, we have a problem in our culture. Maybe the church has a solution, so let's look to the church. But now people are saying, no, the church is the problem. 
You're not as finding it. So your bigger cities, you go to your New York or you go to your London or your bigger cities, you have much more of this post-Christian culture. Probably the West Michigan area, we're a little bit more bubbled and a little bit more protected from that view, but it is gaining momentum. Probably our younger generation is much more aware of this post-Christian culture than maybe people my age or above because we don't sense it as much from our peers and, and our colleagues, but the younger generation definitely is experiencing it. So what do we do when we have a message to share and God has told us you need to share the gospel and people are resistant? They don't want to hear what you have to say. What do you do? I mean, at one time we had, you know, probably like uh, plans of evangelism. Okay, if you do this and then you do that and then you can open the gospel and share with people. What do you do with the younger generation that says, I don't believe anything that you have to say because you come from the church and I think the church is the problem. I think the church is narrow-minded. I think the church is opinionated. I think the church is a lot of other things that people could say. How do you respond to that? What are you supposed to say? I think now more than ever is the time that if we are going to try to share the gospel with somebody, we need to do it through love. If we don't have a spirit of love and a spirit of compassion that is evident to the person we're talking to, then he probably shouldn't even try to share the gospel because it's not going to work very well. And that creates a question. How do I become more loving? How do I become more compassionate? Because it's one thing to say, okay, you want to share the gospel? Be more loving. It's like, well, how do I just do that? That doesn't just happen. It's kind of like saying to me, oh, I want to run a marathon. Okay, go out and do it. Now that ain't going to happen. I'm going to have to train for that. I'm going to have to strategically say, okay, I want to run a marathon. I want to run 26.2 miles. How am I going to do that? How am I going to go from I don't run at all now to I want to run a marathon in a year? I'm going to have to set out a course and then I'm going to do it. And I think as a church and as a community, as individuals, we need to have the same attitude in our spiritual life. We need to take strategic steps so that we become more loving and more compassionate. I mean, the Bible has always told us that we are imitators of Christ, and that's who we're striving to be. But I think now, more than any time, it's extra important that we become imitators of Christ. I, look what, I like what John Mark Comer says in his book, Garden City. He said, our job is to make the invisible God visible. Our job is to make the invisible God visible, to mirror and mimic what he is like to the world. We can glorify God by doing our work in such a way that we will make the, visible, will make the invisible God visible by what we do and how we do it. That is what we're called to do. That's what we are striving to do, to make the invisible God visible. So the last few weeks, we have focused on what God has done for us. We do that a lot in church. We like to talk about what God has done for us, how he has empowered us, how he's given us his power, how he's given us authority, how he heals us and redeems us and set us free. But I want to focus now in this series on, well, what is our responsibility? What do we do in response to all that God has done for us? So I'm calling this series Building a Trellis. Probably some of you are like, I have no idea what you'd call it, why you would call this series Building a Trellis. But if you're here the last series, you know that we talked a lot about John 15. 
or John, yeah, John 15. We talk about the scripture that says, you are the vine and I am the branches. The whole metaphor in John 15 is that Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, and God is the vine dresser, and so he's taking care of all the vine to help us to produce fruit. And the big theme of the message for the last two weeks is that what God does, he lifts each of us up so that we can bear fruit. Because a vine that is left on the ground will not bear fruit. See, we are the vines, and vines naturally grow on the ground. A vine that grows on the ground will not bear fruit. It actually will die. It will just develop fungus, and that's not good. So what God does in the scripture, he lifts you up so that you can bear fruit. And that whole process of being lifted up is this process that we commonly refer to as spiritual formation. Here's a definition of spiritual formation by Richard Foster that says, Spiritual formation is a process. But it is also a journey through which we open our hearts to a deeper connection with God. We are not bystanders in our spiritual lives. We are active participants with God who is ever inviting us into a deeper relationship with him. See, spiritual formation or discipleship or apprentices to Jesus is what we are called to do. A couple weeks ago, I gave a message, and we talked about being a disciple of Jesus in the first century. We talked about in the first century, if you grew up in a Jewish family or a Jewish culture, your goal in life was to become a disciple of a rabbi. And so you would send your kids to school from five years old all through a little elementary school and a, like a middle school, and then your goal was that your child would be so smart that they would memorize so much of the Torah and the Old Testament that they could actually go on to like a high school and after they would finish this high school, they would have so much capacity that they would be so smart, they would know so much of the Torah that the rabbis at the time would, would actually want this young student to actually follow them. So you'd raise your child with the whole goal is that someday that they could be a disciple to a rabbi. And what Jesus does, he comes on the scene, and he is the rabbi instead of people coming to Jesus to say, can I follow you? Jesus goes to the people that were never picked up to become disciples and says, I want you to follow me. So we see that Jesus' is, Jesus is calling to people to become disciples isn't you proving yourself how good you are to him, but instead Jesus saying, I'm going to prove to you how good you are, how good I am. I'm going to prove it to you. And then people followed him. But to be a disciple of Jesus in the first century wasn't something that you did for an hour on Sunday morning and maybe a couple minutes during the week, but it was something that you did 24-7. It was something that consumed you. It consumed your life. It consumed your practice. Because to be a disciple in the first century meant you would spend time with your rabbi so you could become like your rabbi and you could do what your rabbi did. The whole goal of being a disciple of Jesus in the first century is that you would become just like your rabbi. And that is what God has called us to do. He's called each of us to become just like him. So we want to focus in this series of what is called God called us to do, to be more like him. See, in our American culture, what we do is our default usually is if you want to become more like Christ, you enter a spiritual, you understand a, a more, of a, a, a more of a knowledge. We kind of think in our culture, you want to become more like Christ, well then learn more, study more. Now learning can help, study can help, that's valuable. 
But study doesn't always just make you change and doesn't make you more like Christ. Sometimes we have to do more than just study. And that's where this whole topic of spiritual formation that's coming in today. And that's what I want us to talk about today. Some of you know that over the last couple decades, the HGTV channel on TV has grown in great proportions. I remember back before the 90s, you didn't have shows like HGTV. And hopefully all of you know what HGTV is. Anybody dare not say, I don't know what HGTV is? The Home and Garden Network. It's a show that people love because we like to watch them renovate houses. We like to watch them remodel bathrooms. We like them to see what they remodel on a lawn. I remember before HGTV when they had the DIY Network. Any of you remember DIY Network? Yeah, I remember that, yeah. That was like the boring days. That was the pre-HGTV where like you would watch an episode and it would be like how to hang a shelf in a house. I mean, the whole episode would be like how to hang one shelf and you'd be like, whoa, isn't this cool TV? Or they might have a really fun episode and it'd be like how to change your toilet, how to put in a new toilet. And you'd watch that on Friday night like, wow, this is really cool. Things have evolved greatly, so now everybody wants to be Chip and Joanna Gaines, and we all want to do a fixer-upper. So we have progressed far in our HGTV world. But the thing that we love about HGTV is that they come and they find this dilapidated, old, run-down house that I would look at it and I would say, in my pragmatic mind, I would say, just tear that thing down and start over. But no, you get Chip and Joanna and they see vision, they see purpose, they see remodel, they say, wow, look what you can do to this house. And if we knock down this wall and we put the bathroom over here and the kitchen here, and they come up with this huge plan to renovate a house that a typical person like me that's very pragmatic would say, just knock it down. So they have these architectural plans that they'll show, okay, this is the first house, this is what we're gonna do with it. It's kind of an amazing thing, like wow, you really can do that. I still can't figure out how they do that with their budget. That part, I just, it seems like they always get a better deal than I do at Home Depot. Home Depot. Yeah. So anyway, so then the whole show is all on after they, Chip and Joanna decide, okay, this is what it's gonna look like. Then the rest of the show is how the process to take the house from the before to the after. And it's a fun process, makes me a little stressful because they always run into problems halfway through and then they gotta figure out, okay, you gotta redo the budget. But it, and then they finish up and there is this beautiful house that's completely re renovated. It looks completely different from what it started out. And so the whole show is really a process of renovation. And we like to watch renovation processes. They're fun to watch, they're encouraging to watch and it makes you feel really good at the end. But we also like to watch a good renovation process of a person. We like a good testimony. We like a good story of a person who looked like a shattered down house where you thought, I don't see a whole lot of hope for that. And we like to see the master architect, Jesus Christ, come in and say, but this is what I can do with that life. Those are fun things to watch. You'd probably be surprised to find out that the word renovation is actually in the Bible several different times. In Romans 12, verse 1, a lot of you are familiar with this verse. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
Right there, the word renewing, if you go back to the original Greek language, it's the word for renovation. Strong's concordance, it is renovation. You go to the Thayer's concordance, and it's the word for renewal, renovation, or a complete change for the better. And that's what we like to see, God do a renovation in someone's life that's a complete change for the better. And that is what God wants to do in every single follower of his. Do a renovation for the better. It's interesting, the word that Paul uses for transformed is the word where you get the word metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. And we talk about a butterfly turning into a caterpillar. And that, the other way around. Always got a, always got a heckler in the front row. What do you, where do you start at? What do you start with? Okay, caterpillar. <laughs> I never was very good at school. <laughs> So you start as a caterpillar, and you turn into a butterfly. The things that I learned at 53. So anyway, just let that sink in for a little while. It does make more sense. All right. So if you also go back to, bounce back to Romans 12. Paul says to the people, he says, this is interesting. He says to people, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, if you're in first century, you would be hearing, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That might make you sweat a little bit. Because these people were probably alive before Christ, or they heard their families of Jewish stories where you actually offered sacrifices of animals on the altar. And suddenly you're hearing, offer your bodies as a sacrifice? It's like, whoa, did the bar get, what happened here? See, what Paul is talking to people, he say, hey, you remember in the days where you had to make sacrifices. You had to make sacrifices for your sins. You had to bring a bull or a goat or a pigeon to sacrifice the sins of your family. You don't do that anymore. Jesus has paid the ultimate sacrifice for you. But what Jesus is asking is that your behavior would be a sacrifice to him. That the way you act, the way you behave, and what you do in your life would be a sacrifice that it would be offering to God. That he would see what you're doing, not to atone for your sins, but to see what you are doing as a way that you're showing that you love God and that you want to serve him. So it's a reminder of Paul in this package of saying God wants to do a renovation in your life in response to what God is doing in your life. Then let your behavior show to other people that you really want to follow Christ and you want to be obedient to him. So then we also see that renovation, that word, shows up in two other parts in Scripture. You go to Titus 3 and it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceiving, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's why you had to have the renovation process. Because Titus said that's what you were like before you found Christ. And Titus 3 verse 4 through 7 comes on and tells you, okay, what does the after picture look like? What does it look like after the renovation? It says, but with the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. 
through the washing of regeneration and renewing, there's a word for renovation again, of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So you're there again in the middle of the verse, you have the word for the restoration that he wants to do in your life. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is when people look at you as followers of Jesus Christ, do they see a work of of renovation? Do they see a work of a person who has been restored what Christ wants to do in your life? See, in Romans 8, 29, it says, for whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We talk about that a lot. God has called us to be formed to conform to the image of his son. And is that evident? Because if we are going to connect with other people and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, is our transformation evident to other people? And if it's not evident to other people, then what are we to do? How are we to make that more evident? As I said earlier, we need to go through the spiritual formation process so that as we spend more time with Christ, we become more like Christ, start to do the things Christ did, and finally, people will be our it'll be more evident to other people that we are like Christ. So if you go back to what did the first and century Christians do to become more like Christ? We talk about spiritual formation. We're going to talk about spiritual formation a lot in this series. But if you go back to the ancient church, and this can be traced back to the first and second century, people developed habits in their life or patterns in their life or routines in their life that helped them keep Christ center of their life, and they would refer to these habits or patterns as a rule of life. You find this trace back, this whole topic of a rule of life, which is kind of a way to live by. It's patterns and rhythms and behaviors to live by that help you put Christ center in your life. You find this in the first century, but you also find many of the early reformers, like John Calvin, even talked about a rule of life, developing a rule of life. This was popularized a lot by even your monks back in the monasteries, that people in the monastery would develop a rule of life. So you might say, okay, what is a rule of life? Pete Scazzaro, who is probably one of the biggest leaders on this topic of spiritual formation, says, a rule of life is an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything we do. The starting point and foundation of any rule is a desire to be with God and to love him. So a rule of life is this. It's simple. How do you develop routines and patterns and behaviors and rhythms in your own life that help you keep God at the center of everything you do? See, we get busy in our life. We have this competition in our life between our relationship with God and the relationship with technology. You just watch people. We all know it. We all do it. Every second you have spare, you pull out your phone. You go to a restaurant, you're bored, you pull out your iPad. We have this temptation, always electronics, that we have to be connected. And now more than ever, we have constantly, electronics are trying to pull us away from everything. So what do you do with your life when you, there they are, there they are. Julius, thank you, perfect timing. All clap for Julius, yay. And he left the room to take a call, left my sermon. See, there's my illustration right there. Sure, it's important. 
For example, one of my rule of life is, a rule of life is a, a lot of different patterns I have. One of the rule, my rule of life is, the first thing I do in the morning, before I check my phone, before I do anything, I read the verse of the day. I don't memorize it. I don't ponder it. Honestly, I don't remember what the verse was this morning. But the first thing I do is I look at the verse of the day that pops up on my screen before I wake up. That's just a pattern that I have in my life that helps me keep God at the center. I might check Facebook next, but I start with these little things. Rule of life is supposed to be just a bunch of little things that you do in your life to keep you focused on your relationship with God throughout the day. See, our goal in our life is to live in a constant communion with Jesus 24-7. But that's hard to do because we have jobs, we have kids, we have roommates, we have spouses, we have responsibility, and it's hard to do that. A rule of life is a philosophy of living to help us to keep God at the center of everything we do. So we do. We talk about developing rules of life. We talk about a rule of life to help us in our, our Bible study, our relationship with God. But it's not just a spiritual aspects of our life, but it's it's also the attitude and gratitude. How do you develop rules so you remember to be grateful? Or how do you remember a rule of life so you can live better in community? I have rules of life to help me live better in relationship with Becky and with my kids and with the community that I'm in. But also it helps you in your job and your work and your environment. See, a rule of life is not a detailed list of things that you're going to do. It's not, like, it's not like a New Year's resolution. Instead, a rule of life should be looked at as it's an opportunity that's given to you by the Holy Spirit to focus your life and your rhythms about around your relationship with God. So how do we come up with the idea? Why is it called a rule of life? Because I know some of you are thinking, a rule of life? You're talking about a bunch of rules? I don't like that idea of a bunch of rules. That sounds a little legalistic. Rule sounds like law. I don't really want to do what you're talking about. So I'll tell you why we call it a rule of life. Got to go back about 1,800 years to find out why you call it a rule of life. See, the word rule comes from the Latin word for regalia. Think of the word ruler. See, back when they would refer to a rule of life, the word that they would be saying is a ruler. And a ruler is a long piece of wood. And the long piece of wood was also used as a trellis. A rule of life is a trellis of life. See, we're the vines. He's the branch. He lifts us up. What do you do when you lift up a vine? Where are you going to put it? You put it on a trellis. And that's what God wants us to do in our life, to develop patterns and rhythms and behavior. So as he lifts us up, we are doing things in our own life, our own responsibility to support what God's already doing in our life. That's why I'm calling this series Building a Trellis. A rule of life developing patterns and rhythms in your life is nothing more than saying, I'm responding to what God is already doing in my life. See, very simply, a rule of life is just simply a strategic plan to help us grow in our relationship with God. It's a tool to help us to become more like Christ. So a rule of life, and we're going to talk about this a lot at Lake Effect Church. I wanted to influence five areas, and I'm sorry I forgot to put this in your handout. But a rule of life should, should influence in these five areas. Number one is our prayer and our spiritual life. We need to develop ha habits in our, our, our prayer and our spiritual life. Number two, a rule of life should in influence us in our rest and relaxation. 
We as Americans need to learn how to rest better. We need to learn how to rest. We need to set up rules, boundaries, so we learn how to rest. Most Americans like to stay busy, 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 constantly going, and we don't rest. Third area that we need to focus on is our relationships with other people in the community that we live in. The fourth area is our work, our career. And the fifth area is gratitude. Sometimes in our culture, we are always moving so forward, 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 we forget to be grateful for what we've had in the past. So a rule of life is simply an intentional way to keep God at the center of your life. Now, the reality is most of you already have a lot of rules of life going on in your life. You do have a lot of patterns in your life that to keep God first. Probably a lot of you thought about, you thought, okay, yeah, I do go in church on Sunday. I do read my Bible during these times of the day. I pray during these times of the day. I do fellowship over here. I do some rest. Most of you already have rhythms in your own life that you are already doing. The series is to focus on how to be even more intentional about those rhythms and maybe help you even develop a rhythm if maybe you are really seem to be out of sync. See, the thing is, for a lot of us Christians, we don't have a very good conscience plan to grow in our relationship with God. Most of us just think our relationship with God just will automatically just happen. So we don't put a whole lot of effort into it. And sometimes when we don't put a lot of effort, we don't expect much either. It's like earlier I talked about if I was going to run a marathon, I would have a strategic plan in place how I'm going to go from not running to be able to run 26.2 miles. Developing rhythms in our life is to help us say, okay, how do I get to be the person I really want to be? What am I going to do that's going to take me from here to where I want to go? So this message and the series is all about how to be more strategic in your life. So I'm going to finish this message talking about ways to become actually more strategic. So we're going to go more from a sermon time to more a practical teaching time. How do you actually do it? How do you develop rhythms in your life so you can be more Christ-centered and focus around Christ? So we're going to start out with this list that's been adapted from Bridgetown Church in Portland. Number one, the first thing you do, you got to pray. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. One of the worst things that you can do when you look at a discipline like developing rhythms in your life is to say, okay, I'm going to do 10,000 things. That's not going to work. We all know those New Year's resolutions that you put down way crazy things that you'll never do and you're discouraged. So you start out by simply, we're going to start by praying. We're going to ask the Lord to focus us, help us to know what he wants us to do first and second and third. And also, this spiritual formation is supposed to be fun. This isn't supposed to be like a task you do like, okay, I'm bad, I've done wrong, I gotta do this. This is a fun thing that you get to do. This is an opportunity that you get to do because you're gonna become more Christ-like. And people are gonna like that because you're gonna develop more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're gonna have more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and mercy and self-control. I got them all. That's what we get to do. This is the fun part about being Christian. So the first thing, or the second thing you're going to do is start small. Start where you're at, not where you want to be. The key is to start small and to develop patterns in your life that are going to bring you more peace and joy, that are going to encourage your relationship with the Lord. Here's one thing that I do. Probably like most of you, you know, you got to pray every day. Probably like most of you, praying every day is kind of a hard thing. 
sometimes I get lost in my prayers because I don't know where I'm going. I just start praying and I, next thing you know what, I'm thinking about dinner. I think most of us do that. What I've done in my life to make my prayer time more effective, I have a strategic way I pray every day. I have a theme that I pray every day. This is what I do to see what the Holy Spirit will lead you. Sundays, obviously, big day for me. Most of you say the one day a week I work. So I get up and I pray all day for this service all morning. And then I do the service. Then I pray the rest of the day that what I taught you, that it would take hold and that it would develop you more, that it would bless all of you. So Sunday, my day is focused on church. Tomorrow's my day off. Monday's my day off. So I spend the day with Becky and the summer with the kids. And so my focus that day of prayer is my family. Pray for my relationship with Becky, the kids. That's the focus. Now, obviously, I'll pray for Lottie tomorrow as well. I'll pray for Tammy's family. I'll pray for other things. But I have a focus each day what I pray for. Because otherwise, I'm just going to scramble all over. I'll never have effective prayer life. Tuesday, I pray for all of you. I pray for Lake Effect Church, the people that come to Lake Effect Church. I go through my mind. I think of all the people that were there on Sunday, and I pray for you, and I pray for the others that weren't there. And I focus. That's my focus on Tuesday prayer time. Wednesday, I pray for people outside of our city. Thursday is my missionary day. I pray for Ted and Leslie, and I pray for Andrew, and I pray for the missionaries connected to Lake Effect in the global world. So each day I have a theme that strategically I pray for that, and then I'll pray for other things. But it helps me to have an abundant prayer life because otherwise I just get up and I'm like, oh, man, that's going to take a long time to do that. And I just scatter my brain. So it's strategic. That's what I do. That helps me keep focused on what I'm going to do. And that's fun for me. That's the fun thing for me to do. Okay, the third thing that I want you all to do is take an audit. What are you already currently doing in your life? What are your current rhythms and practices that you do? Maybe you're already doing a bunch of things that keep Christ focused in your life. Write them down. Keep track of them. Are they really that effective? For me, my prayer life, I had to overhaul it. It really wasn't working that good without kind of coming up with this strategic way to do it. I change the way I get up in the morning. I get up way early in the morning because I find out I am way more productive when everybody else is sleeping in the house. I get up crazy early. I love it. I'm going to start, yeah, I love it. I'd get up earlier every day. (laughs) Becky and I literally live on two sides of the clock. I'm getting up and she's kind of going to bed. It's crazy. But anyway, it works well with our oldest son, Nick, because... He doesn't sleep. So take an audit. What are you already doing in your life? I think some of you would be very encouraged to go, wow, I'm really already doing a lot of this. I'm doing things to keep God first in my life. You know, when I'm in my car, I am trying to listen to Christian music. Or when I'm doing this pattern, I'm praying. And just focus on that kind of stuff. What are you already doing? And then number four, then start writing out a plan. You know, write it with your roommate. Write it with a friend. Write it with a spouse. You know, do, do, get fun. Have fun with it. Becky and I talk about this stuff all the time. I love this kind of stuff. I'm a three on the Enneagram. I'm the achiever guy. I like rules. That's fun. Becky's a nine. No, she hates this kind of stuff, actually. But she, she goes along with me because this is fun stuff for me. So have fun with it, but be specific about your goals. Write out your plans. Where do you want to see yourself in a year from now? What areas of your life are you looking at going, huh, not really pleased with that part of my life? You know, no different than, you know, like you might want to lose weight. You know, you say, okay, how am I going to strategically do that? What part of your life do you look at in the mirror and say, I don't like that behavior when I do that? Or really, you look in the mirror, you're like, I'm really not that patient. 
Maybe you want to develop that, you know, focus on what do you want to see changed in your life? And kind of bring that to God and say, how do I get from here to there? What, what is your Holy Spirit doing? Because my guess is the Holy Spirit already has a plan for your life. He has something that he already wants to do, and he just wants you to wake up to the reality of what he's doing and go along with a ride for him. You're not trying to convince the God of what you want to do, and then he's going to do it. No, he already has a well, that was fast. He already has a plan that he wants to do in your life. He's just trying to get you on your plan with him. See, another thing that I have done, I maximize my time in my car. I, I, I spend a lot of time in my car, and I like that. But I have strategic things I do. I always have a podcast geared up. Sometimes I get in my car, I, I don't need a podcast. I just need music. I just need quiet. That's okay. But I always have the ability to do a podcast. Just do strategic things like that, that you can focus your life if you need to. Maybe you need a break. It's part of the rule of life too, is you don't have to force yourself to do what is there. You got to have fun with it. All right, the third thing is you got to consider your stage of life and your obligations. What did I miss? Oh, do less, not more. Yeah, that's important. Because see, our American view is more, more, more. The more, the better, the more, the better. No, less is better. That's actually the goal of this is to do less, but to be a more effective. It's to kind of build in your life some margin so you can slow down a little bit. So the goal is actually to do less, but to be a little bit more effective. All right, the sixth thing is consider your stage of life and obligations. You got a bunch of little kids running around your house. It's probably going to be kind of hard for you to do stuff like that. You have a two-year-old running around. You don't have a whole lot of free time. But you try to figure out how you can do things with your obligations that are going on. So consider your stage of life. Consider your responsibilities. Consider what you have to do. So the seventh thing that you need to do is uh, consider your personality type. Like I said earlier, I love this kind of stuff. I'm a three, I'm the achiever, I love lists. There's nothing that makes me happier than getting a list in the morning and the end of the day crossing it all off. That drives my wife crazy. But I love that stuff. But see, my problem, the way I'm wired, I sometimes get more fulfillment out of doing my list than actually the time I'm spending with the Lord. And I gotta be very careful that I'm not achieving my list of things to do just so I feel better about myself. It's not helping my relationship with God. So that's the weakness of my personality. Number eight, you have to have a balance between your upstream activities and your downstream activities. You kinda know what that means. Upstream, swimming upstream is hard to do. Swimming downstream is a lot of fun to do. You have to actually have more downstream activities in your schedule than upstream. You know, for me, a part of my, my, my rule of life, this actually is part of my spiritual life, is I do need 10 minutes of aerobic activity exercise every single day. If I do not do 10 minutes of aerobic exercise in the morning, my brain functions at a different level. So I, see, typically I'm the kind of guy, well, if I don't get it, I, I have an exercise bike. I actually tell you, I have a Peloton. There, my confession. I love that thing. <laughs> Pause the tape right here. If you buy one, talk to me. Anyway, I love my Peloton. But see, I'm the kind of guy, like, if I don't get 45, half hour, 45 minutes on it, I I'm like, I don't even do it. Don't even do it. It's not even worth the time. Well, see, I found myself skipping it too much because I don't often have a half hour, 45 minutes. So now it's my rule of life. I do 10 minutes in the morning. 
At least I get 10 minutes and that's better than nothing, but that changed my life by just focusing on that. So anyway, develop, sometimes you just start 10 minutes. 10 minutes is good, but it changes me considerably. All right, that's my downstream activity. I like to do that. That's fun. Think of the downstream activities that you do in your life. Listening to a podcast in my car, that's fun for me. I actually enjoy that kind of stuff. Now my upstream activities, those are the hard things in my life. Upstream is when you're working on things in your life that uh, you need working on. Excuse me. Upstream activities are working on what we like to call your shadows in your life. Shadows is a nice, easy way to say the sinful things in your life. The things in your life that you need a lot of work on. I love this definition by Peter Sicaro <coughs> on shadows. He says, shadows are those untamed emotions and behaviors that lie largely unconscious beneath the surface of our lives that constitute the damaged version of who we are. <coughs> they may be sinful. They may simply be weaknesses. Most importantly, they lie concealed just beneath the surface of our more Pop, proper selves. I think all of you know what your shadow side is. Kind of going along, everything's good, a person cuts you off, and suddenly your reaction, yeah, that's your dark shadow side. My shadow side is that mire. In that checkout line, I can be the nicest person in the world when I push up there and I wait in line five minutes and they open that checkout line next to me and that person that wait, that makes me crazy. That's my dark shadow comes out of my Fortunately, yeah, I'm working on that. Those are shadow things. What are the things in your life that you need to work on? Focus on those things. Don't put them all down. Start with one. You can't take everything all at once. Figure out ways to be grateful. That's kind of one of my strategies now at Meyer. When I get annoyed at the checkout line, I have to go list my mind things I'm grateful for. That helps my dark shadow calm down a little bit. Number nine, keep a healthy balance of structure and spontaneity. You got to be fun. You can't have this just all rules like, okay, I just got to pray more. Just got to do more hard stuff. Make it fun. Make it easy. Make it light. If you if you're develop patterns and rhythms in your life that you don't enjoy, you're not going to do them. So think of fun things. Number 10, remember that the good rule is a working document. 10 minutes on the Peloton don't work for you every day? Okay, do it five. Adjust. Listening to a podcast in your car don't work for you? Then adjust. Praying in the morning doesn't work? Figure out when. It's interesting. I'm the early morning devotion guy. Becky, late night devotion girl. She didn't have time in the morning. She gets up, she starts sprinting, chasing the kids around. So her time with the Lord is the last thing she does at night. Me, it's the first thing you do in the morning. But you got to figure out what, what rhythm is going to work for you. It doesn't matter when you spend time with the Lord. But if you don't spend time with the Lord, you're not going to get the results. I do like how, uh, oh, I jump ahead of myself. All right, so there's the 10 things that you do to help develop a rule of life and rules in your life, to help develop patterns in your life. So now I got four quick steps to help you do it. Number one, or five steps, actually. Number one, pray. I'm taking that big list. I'm going to make it into five. Like, okay, really focus on this. Number one, pray. Number two, do that time and habit budget. Already look at what are you doing in your life. Number three, start out. What is most important to you? What is essential? 
Think of it like packing a suitcase. You're going to go away for a week. You have a small suitcase. What are you going to put in first? Hopefully your toothbrush. <laughs> you start there. You're going to think about where you're going. You're going to budget how many clothes you're going to take. Do that, developing rhythms in your life. What is most important to you that you can't live without, that you really need? Start there. Number four, try it out. Does it work? Does this loose structure that you have in your life actually going to work for you? If it doesn't work well for you, then scrap it. Start over. You've got to develop a plan, a rhythm in your life that you're actually going to like. That's why number five is revise and commit to what you're doing. Revise, commit, revise, revise, revise. You probably spend as much time revising. But the goal is as we mature in our relationship with the Lord, we develop more and more patterns in our life to help us to become more Christ-like because that's the goal. Our goal is that we build a trellis that we are the vine hanging on the trellis and we're going to bear a whole lot of fruit. And people are going to look at us and go, wow, you resemble Christ. I'm going to listen to you. Because we have a hurt in a broken world that needs the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And they're not going to listen to you unless you show love and compassion. There's people who need Christ. They need the renovation that only Jesus Christ can do. And they're not going to listen to us if we just come with them with facts and verses. People aren't going to listen to us if we just talk at them. Talking at people is not going to work. People want us to listen to them, to get to know them, to get to know their story. But in return, to show them love. That's what we get to do. That's what we, the opportunity we have to do. See, business consultants will often say that the system that you have in place is designed to give you the results that you are getting. Each of us has a system in place in our life right now, whether we know it or don't know it, that's giving us the results. Developing some spiritual formation in your life, developing some rule of life is simply to help you get the results that you want in your life. So often we want some result, but we're not doing what's necessary to get it. So I'm excited for the series, excited where we're going with the spiritual formation so we can become who God has already created us to be. See, it's one thing to discover your identity in Christ, understand who you are, what God has called you to do and be. But it's a whole lot more fun when you get over here and you actually start becoming who God has called you to be. You start becoming the person that God created you to be. There's nothing better than you get to be you and I get to be me. That is living an abundant life, is when I'm living in the confidence of who I am and who Christ has called me to be with my life focused and centered on Christ and I'm being the apprentice of Jesus Christ that he's called me to be. That's the abundant life. When everything in my life is focused around my relationship with Christ and I'm working towards that, that is what we get to be. So join me in prayer and have the worship team come up and wrap us up with another song. Father, I thank you that you've called us to live the abundant life. I thank you, Father, that you've made every way and every strategy for us to live a fulfilling life. And you made it every strategy for us to be lifted up that we could bear fruit. Lord, it is not a hurdle for us to bear fruit and to become like Christ. Lord, you've done all the heavy work, all the lifting. You're just telling us to cooperate with your plans. 
So God, I pray that you'd move through this body and that you would help us to be who you've called us to be. That you'd empower us to make those tough decisions and then tough choices to follow, to implement rhythms and structures in our own life so that we would become more Christ-like. Father, I pray that you'd move among us, Lord. Help change us, Lord, to be more like your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.